0: As former fire captain John Orr walked in to be sentenced today, looking at his face, there was no clue to the madness that would cause him to set fires all over California, killing four people in this 1984 fire at Ole's home center in South Pasadena. Two store employees died in this blaze, along with two-year-old Matthew Troidel and his 50-year-old maternal grandmother. Prosecutors claim the former arson investigator got sexual gratification out of setting fires. Today, Orr declined to address the court and Judge Robert Perry sentenced him to four life terms in prison without the possibility of parole.
1: I find that uh, four concurrent life without parole terms are appropriate for counts one through four and they are now imposed.
0: Hearing the sentence, Orr seemed passive, but relatives of people killed in fires he set wanted the death penalty an eye for an eye he gets to see his grandson he gets to just enjoy breathing and being alive and that's more than our families are going to be able to do at the glendale fire department where john Orr worked former colleagues said good riddance to bad rubbish
2: i think he's very sick uh... you know it's very disappointing to work with someone and think that uh, they have the same motivations that you do and find that they don't
0: Leaving court, John Orr will now spend the rest of his life in prison. He was also convicted on 20 counts of arson for setting the 1990 College Hills fire in Glendale. Doug Kriegel, Channel 4 News.
3: Welcome to the Scarlet Tavern. Grab a drink, take a seat, and let's begin. Tonight's episode, we continue our discussion on John Leonard Orr, the firefighter turned arsonist and killer. Does this spark your interest? This is a Scarlet Tavern. All right, and we are back with part two. Um... We would like to welcome my father, Aaron, who is our, uh, merchandising director for Dungeons and Magi, one of our founding members and board members, um, also a law enforcement veteran, um, did more law enforcement than Ben and I combined. So, um, I want to start off. If you would tell everybody a little bit about yourself and your background.
2: Um, I was originally going that branch and decided to just dive right into law enforcement. So I did um, 20 years in Florida with the sheriff's office down there. Started in corrections like a lot of people do to get my name out there and learn faces. Uh, Retired in 2008 and jumped into the nuclear side of things and went into nuclear security and nuclear protection. Did that for quite a while. Uh, Security jobs here and there off and on. Um, Extensive training in uh, narcotics and investigations and, um, all that good stuff. So,
3: So, yeah, we're, we're kind of adding, um, to all of this, to everything that we talk about, uh, he's going to go ahead and join us in part two of everything that we do in our second part's. Um, we do record everything on one night. We just split it into two recordings and by the time he gets off of work, he's able to join us in part two. So we'll, we'll be jumping into part two and he's going to share, uh, a little bit more law enforcement knowledge from what we did. Uh, he and I both were volunteer firefighters for a time, um, even here in Kentucky, um so in this particular instance we are able to share a little bit on that as well. Um but yeah, so we are glad to have him for our second parts of all of our stuff. Um and I want to start off with an F Mary Kill.
1: Oh. For just Aaron or me too. Both of you.
3: Oh, God. F. Mary Kill, God. Ed Kemper, oh. Ed Gein, and Jim Jones.
2: Oh God! Oh
0: goodness!
1: <clears throat> uh, this one from Oh please! Oh God!
3: <laughs> Go ahead, Ben. F. Mary Kill, Ed Kemper, Ed Gein, Jim Jones.
1: Uh. F. Ed Kemper. Kill Gein, Mary Jones. Okay. Gein, Gein is creepy. He's. No. Okay,
2: okay.
3: Hmm. What is yours?
2: Um, probably Mary Jones, because everybody was with Jones anyway, so why not? You know, Just jump in the prey there. Um, man, probably was it Kemper and Gene, right? Gene, Gene, yeah. Gene. Oh yeah. Oh God. Um, it's like the lesser of two evils. You know, what do you do?
1: Um, I mean, with Gene, at least he could he make your, you know, he can create, you know, interior decorations. Just got to give him a shovel and his lo- and a cemetery.
2: Well, that is true. That is true. So I may have to change that and say I would marry him because then I would at least get the interior decorating taken care of. You know, we wouldn't have to worry about new curtains all the time. Yeah. Um, so, and then, oh, goodness. Um Probably um M Kemper, probably. Yeah. So that leaves Jones, right? Since I switched it. So yeah. there you go.
3: Okay. Um I would marry Ed Kemper. Because all accounts were, Ed Kemper was actually a nice person. He just had some mental problems. I would say. So, So same, same thing problem. as my ex-wife.
2: Dude, dude you're, you're right. right. And all, all my ex wife Exactly. Uh, that's, that's it. it. That's, that's it. the that's direction the I'm going. going. I'm already, I'm already used to, use it. to it.
3: Um, so, uh, and God, I hope she hears this, um, <laughs> Says my the mother of my child, but still.
1: Yes. Um Oh boy.
3: So yes, I would marry Ed Kemper, I would F Jim Jones. Um because everybody was doing it, why not? Exactly. Um plus he was charismatic. Uh and then I would kill Ed Geen because I mean I mean, the man doesn't need to be He can. He makes lampshades out of women's vaginas. Let's be honest.
1: Interestingly enough, he's from the same area as Pam was from.
3: Yes, he is. We will touch on Ed Gein. Um, That's scary. All right. So um, if you want to just do a quick recap of everything we touched on in part one, and then we'll move on to part two. Of
1: course. So as we as we were talking about in top part one about the, um, John Leonard Orr, his uh, early life, born in Los Angeles. Uh, former former Air Force firefighter stationed in Spain and Montana. Voluntarily went to Montana. Caleb and I still haven't figured out why anybody would do that. But, you know, well, he does probably does confirm he was psychotic um started off as um his public service as attempting to join pretty much every law enforcement agency in los angeles being rejected by the lapd for being mentally unfit um eventually he did apply to the los angeles fire department but during the uh, fire academy. He was overweight, out of shape, and unable to complete the task or um, handle the education task. So he ended up being kicked out of that. He eventually would set. He would eventually settle, which he, which it which was, it was he settled for the Glendale Fire Department, which at the time was the lowest paying fire department. Um. While on his off time from the Glendale Fire Department, he'd work as store security for Sears and at 7-Eleven, and he would get very proficient in asset protection and security and would start gar- garnering the reputation of time as a cop wannabe. would hang out at all the drinking establishments for the cops, basically trying to measure up to actual police officers and failing miserably. Eventually, he would apply for and take a different position within the Glendale Police Department as the Hill Patrol, basically driving the three-ton truck around with the portable hose and water tank, checking campsites and other fire places for um, fire inspections and putting out small brush fires. Um, This is this is where he would also start developing his. pyro pyro tendencies really um obviously he probably started off at a very young age as a but nothing but this is where he really came into his element um he would start he would go, he would be also going to college for uh fire, uh firefighting uh, sciences and also police services police sciences as well um, eventually, he would he would rise to the ranks of the Glendale Fire Department and become a captain and a lead fire investigator. During the eighties, this is also where um, he would start setting multiple brush fires around the southern and central California region. Um, many of these were done as diversionary. Um, uh, arsons in order to set something larger in the area. Eventually, one of these would would be the um, I think it was what do we call it? O-L-E. Olay's O L E
3: Olay's yeah,
1: Olay's hardware store, uh, which would lead, unfortunately lead to the tragic tragic death of four people, including a two year old boy and his grandmother, um. Now, interesting enough about this case, many investigators, arson investigators from Southern California were brought into the area, including John Orr, and, and most of them had concluded that this was an electrical fire. Not Johnny Boy. No, he was like, this is arson. Made a big stink about it, too. Nobody believed him, but he was convinced it was arson. And, How did he and- know this? And he did it.
3: And one of his things, what's funny, and we were joking about this in part one, is he, if you remember CSI Miami, the redhead, and I know you hate this guy
1: David Caruso. I looked him up. John,
3: John Orr would do this. He would walk in with glasses on and walk in and go, The fire started there. And I, I told him, I said, It's just like CSI Miami, like uh, this sparks my interest
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 but, and, and that would be his thing there were now keep in mind he didn't investigate all of his fires but he did investigate some he would go to fires and he would the it would just be let's say at a big campsite or like an rv campsite Firefighters are canvassing the area, clearing the rubble or the rubbish, trying to find out anything. They'd be over there. He'd just pull up, look around, and he'd be like, "And just where nobody were, be, nobody would be over there." And somehow he just he's like, "There it is. I found the point of origin."
3: But of course, uh, I would be the gr- like I said last, the last one, I would be the greatest detective. If I was solving all my own killings, I would be the world's greatest detective.
2: Oh, sure. 100%. What I find interesting with this is during this whole time, he had every opportunity to sway the investigations. hmm But he didn't. So... Looking at that, looking at his background, the fact that he wanted to be law enforcement, could it cut it? He wanted LAPD, couldn't cut it. Wanted the fire department, could it cut it? Settled for Glendale. It was an ego thing. Mm-hmm. The fire aspect that was there for years. It's not something that you just wake up one day and go, "Oh, I'm gonna start playing with fire." There's always been that fascination.
1: Oh yeah, so absolutely. Like
2: you had said, his. His, the culminating factor; all the the pieces were in place, everything was there. So then it becomes becomes a well, look at me, you know, I I want you to know that I did this without 100% admitting that I did this.
1: Mm-hmm. And as we co- as we touched on um, episode one during uh, an actual conference. During a conference in Bakersfield, California. Well, actually, it was in Fresno, but I guess Fresno and Bakersfield aren't that far apart from each other. I've never been to California, so I have no idea. Somebody in Cal, any listeners, you out there are
3: not missing anything because California is a shithole.
1: I normally would say,
3: California, I
1: would, try, I would say something to disclaimer to people who live in California, but I have friends, I have. I, I have, have
3: friends, friends that, that live in California and they hate it.
1: Yeah, so and I've been there a few um, times, and it sucks. Yeah, um, around the time that there was actually a uh, conference and slash convention for arson investigators for Central California, a series of, um, a series of arsons started breaking out, including a um, department store where somebody had actually used a incendiary device that was homemade with a combination of a lit cigarette three matches a rubber band wrapped around in yellow legal writing pads and this is what it was used it was set in an artificial flower and it would cause a fire which caused damage luckily nobody was hurt in this fire but this is where the first this is where their first real clue to this was they found a fingerprint Unfortunately, they could at the time they could not actually determine who the fingerprint was, but this is also when they the rate the investigators started realizing this is a possibly a, uh, a farce investigator well
3: and we talked about it the last one and you became a cop in the early nineties so. This was 87. And correct me if I'm wrong, but in most states, even back then, they didn't have the ability to run fingerprints like we do now. Your your comparison of fingerprints is literally looking at two fingerprints and going back and forth and trying to find the points of reference between the fingerprints.
2: Yeah, very accurate. Um, during the late well, 87, I would have been... Junior in high school, getting ready to go into the senior year. Um, at that point, everything was geared towards law enforcement. I knew that that's what I was doing at 10. So um, at that time, it was exactly that. The, the only one that had the ability to digitally scan was the FBI. And they basically kept it locked down because, well, they're the FBI. You know, Mm -hmm. we have the toys, we don't want you to have the toys, blah, blah, blah. And it was several occurrences like this that spurred uh, a national cry throughout the law enforcement community that said, hey, we need a way to unify the fingerprint system and the ability to track throughout state to state to state. But what you would do is exactly what Caleb said. You would have somebody that had extensive training in fingerprint identification, and they would spend hours with these index cards. Looks like a, a 6 by 8 card and they're taking their magnifying glass and going over the print and making notations and you're spending hours and hours and hours. And then when you find what you think could be a catch, that gets sent to who? The FBI.
3: Well, and and... To add to that, so not only were they having to do that, but when he when this arson investigator made a shortlist, he was there was ten people on that shortlist that he fingerprinted. So now he's having to do. You figure you spend three four hours on one fingerprint. That's forty hours mm-hmm. spent. You're
2: gonna,
3: it's you're, not a perfect you're gonna miss something. Oh oh
0: yeah,
1: and especially if the system is already just inherently. I don't want to say flawed. It's not, but it's not as efficient as we're used to Uh, things get missed. And in this case, John Orr's fingerprint that he had, that they had on record compared to what they found on this, on the, just a, a scrap of legal, legal piece, legal pad paper that was recovered from the scene just did not match his thing. So it was dropped. But as we, as you said, the ego is feeding this, this is not the end of his thing, the end of this. And about um, in late 1990 and early 1991, another series of arson fires broke out in Southern California. This time it was around the actual, the metropolitan area of Los Angeles. As a result, this now Los Angeles Police Department is being brought in. And a larger task force was formed, nicknamed the Pillow Pyro Task Force. This is in reference to the fact that... Great John anime.
3: Orr... Great anime name. <laughs> forget, forget Fire Force. The Pillow Pyro Task Force.
1: <laughs> um, this, this is in reference to the fact that John Orr would often sometimes use uh, pillows to start the fires as well. Um... Um, uh, Mar and uh, Mar, March twenty ninth, nineteen ninety one. Tom, I'm I'm gonna butcher this name. Campu- so,
3: Campuzano.
1: Campuzano, yeah. Thank you. What do I do without you, Caleb? Without to to pronounce the words that I can't pronounce. That's
3: why I'm the boss.
1: Okay. This speaking of feeding egos, um, of the Los Angeles arson task force circulated a flyer at a meeting of the fire investigation fire investigator investigators regional strike team first and this now this was an organization formed by smaller cities in around los angeles county to kind of like pool resources because they didn't have the staffing to have their own dedicated arts investigators um they actually were able to describe the the modus operandi of the suspect and this is when a lot of the um Players from Bakersfield and everybody Are starting to come together and they're starting to Realize okay they're all Comparing notes and now they're starting To realize Yes this is an arson investigator who's Committing these crimes and we believe He's from the Los Angeles area
3: And I will just let Everybody know modus operandi Is motives that is The official Term and coining for Motives and methods
2: Method of operation. Mhm.
1: And as we'll see, um John Orr's MO, his modus operandi would basically to he would start a fire, a smaller fire but significant enough to draw the fire fi- fire department away to say a brush fire. He would go to a campsite somewhere in the ho- in the hills of Los Angeles, set a fire. LAFD would go would go and fight this fire then he would be free to set another fire at another building or another department store or wherever and just start a bigger fire and um, just kind of watch his work Uh, let me see I lost my spot So um, now, consequently, this now this is several years. This is a few years after they've already gotten the fingerprint. They've never lost the fingerprint. But Capizano and some of his colleagues met with others and they were actually able to re-examine the fingerprint from the 87 case in Bakersfield. And they were actually able to this time, due to advancements in fingerprint analysis, they were able at this point to determine that uh john orr's left the fingerprint came from john orr's left ring finger so th- at this point now they realize okay we have circumstantial evidence a surveillance of several months is being put on john orr to kind of track his move and see what he is doing uh yeah it almost got blown because at one point uh john orr found the tracking device in his vehicle he found it, but he thought it was a bomb. So he actually raced to the Los Angeles Police Department's explosive range, and called the actually called the police, saying he had a bomb, and they had to intercept him. It's like, hey, it's a, it's a hoax. It was all, it was just a joke. All the while, they actually had a second device planted on his work vehicle. Um, at that point, they're still following him, and then another arson breaks out in the Los Angeles areas. But due to the tracking device, they're actually able to put him within the vicinity of the fire. Then they were and they were able to actually get a federal grand jury to indict him, and they got a warrant to arrest him. When they arrested him inside of his car, they found a bag full of matches, rubber bands, uh, cigarettes. And a a couple of packets of legal paper pads. All together. These were all like in his briefcase.
2: All recreational. Yeah. Everybody goes around with those in their vehicle. Not a big deal. You
1: know. Um.
3: (laughs) What I'd like to say is from the law enforcement side, those things are everyday common items. Correct. Correct. However, the evidence of those being used to start the fire, that's when you start getting the ability to place those specific items. You already know that it's an, you have evidence that it's an arson investigator who was using those specific items. That's when you're start, you're able to put those two and two together. I could be driving around with those items and they could suspect, but they can't do anything because they have no evidence. But as along with the tracking device will also help because most of the times that he was setting fires, he was in his work vehicle. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're able to use that and track that. And the man's not going to, look for a tracking device on his work vehicle.
1: No. It really yeah. was just pure and this is
3: before, of course, they now they track all of those vehicles anyways.
1: Yeah. If you if John Orr today were around today doing what he did back in the in the eighties and nineties today, he probably wouldn't have gone past he, the first fire. He
3: would not I mean he barely lasted he didn't last that long here. I mean he lasted what?
1: Not even a decade. I didn't even know he yeah back. he
3: lasted five six years and which I will say he gained captain very quickly. Granted, this was a very poor department, but gaining captain in under ten years is pretty good. That's
1: huge. Um, exactly. Plus the fact he not only was he just a captain in the Glendale Fire Department, as I as I spoke uh, touched on a little bit, John Orr, despite his personality, he was he would to say, he was not Mr. congeniality he would he had a certain contempt for authority he had this all the way going back to his air force times and it and it really wouldn't being rejected by what was at the time the most premier law enforcement agency outside of NYPD or the FBI in the world was Definitely a huge rebuke to his ego, so it didn't really help his his contempt of authorities. But in this case, he became the authority, so he would actually go on to be a very leading figure in arson investigation. Um, they actually kind of a little oopsie daisy when they when he was already convicted and sent off to prison. They real they forgot to scrub the training videos for California arson school, and they were still using his training videos with him starting in it
3: this training video is hot <laughs> i uh,
1: actually i actually watched uh, one of them. I, I i i actually watched some of them i actually found before they used to be on youtube i don't i think they i don't know if they still are but i think they they used to be i mean you you look at it at first you look at it it's really just boring stuff it's like you look at this this is this and that's i'm like this is mind-stumming stuff, but then you realize this guy is a serial arsonist, the most prolific in America, you're like, wow, uh, yeah, he would know this stuff, wouldn't he? <laughs> what, uh,
2: better, what better teacher, right?
1: Exactly. It, it, it did kind of cause a little bit of a minor scandal, because they realized it's like, did, did nobody think to scrub his name from all of our records? But, um... One of the other damning things, throughout the his arrest, um, he was actually able to post bail, but he had to um, place it under electronic house arrest. Um, one of the things that they would eventually, when they were searching his home for other evidence, they found a manuscript of a book, unpublished. Of uh, it followed the it followed the um, the main the the protagonist. I don't quite remember the name of the person in it of a serial of a arson investigator investigating a serial arsonist who he believes to be drum roll, also an arson investigator and as they as it would be pointed out at the trial many of the personality aaron asked,
3: aaron, aaron styles
1: Aaron Styles, yes, the character the main character Aaron Stiles would be investigating this. This other uh serial arsonist who was a uh sexual some kind of sadomasochist sexual guy on top of him setting fires in in a way that oh look, he also happens to use cigarettes, rubber bands, matches, and legal paper. He also has this he, to put it simply, John John Orr basically wrote himself in a book committing his crimes. And as we would find out, the, the manuscript would include fires that were committed down to the letter. Now, the problem with this is for John, the problem with John, not for the prosecution, these were fires that John actually did not investigate. He would not, they were not any, they were not in the Glendale Fire Department's jurisdiction. He was not consulted. There's no John Orr would have no knowledge of it, and yet the the setup of the fires were done would look like they came straight from the case the case file of which John Orr had no access to. So how did he know about them? On top of that, the the modus operandi of the the fictional the fictional serial arsons that he wrote about was the exact same to a letter his modus operandi for the crimes that he committed it didn't really take much people to take jury jurors to make the leap that John Orr just decided to confess to his crime and try to make some money off of it Uh, his lawyers did try to suppress the evidence during the trial they were unfortunately for him they there was no these were clearly within the bounds and um uh, they weren't pre- they they would end up not being prejudicial despite all the hee and hauling and the appeals john Orr was eventually convicted of these crimes and eventually in 1990 1998 i believe it was in the mid or late 90s eventually they would relook at the 1984 um olay's hardware store arson and again John Orr's ego and and hubris came back to bite him. The one investigation where everybody concluded it was an accident, but he thought it was arson, came back to bite him, and they reinvestigated and determined, "Hmm, oh, no, looks like he did do that. So what what, what was originally a 30-year sentence, which probably in all likelihood would have been appealed down or reduced down, given California's legal system, uh he is he was eventually convicted on four counts of first-degree murder originally they were going to um pursue the death penalty but he they eventually he was sentenced to life in prison the jury was split eight four in favor of the death penalty but under the california penal code this meant he was automatically given life sentences and that is what then after all appeals were denied and his family had cut him off John Orr now is resting in the California Central Prison in Centelia. You cannot look him up. Apparently, there is a way under the California penal, Penal System. There's like on the computer, you can actually look up and see the status of an inmate in California. John Orr is actually not listed there. He is still alive. He's just, they believe he's under some kind of like protection so that... Somebody doesn't try to kill him, although I doubt anybody would want to kill us from the
3: 90s. So here's the thing that happens, too, that not a lot of people realize is when you are a type of first responder that has cases, uh, whether it's. Civilian law enforcement, federal, military, or a arson investigator With him getting in trouble And him doing all of this This now causes every single case that he ever worked To be reopened and re-looked at Which means... They can declare mistrials on every single thing he did. Everybody that he put in jail will get subsequently released while their case is being reinvestigated. So all these real arsonists that he did catch, because he fucked up, they're all going to be freed. Um, And that's one part that people don't really get. 100%.
2: One hundred percent, and for all the little law, law, legal beagles out there, would know that that what Caleb's talking about is fruit of the poison tree. The assumption is the tree's poisoned; the fruit that's attached to it is more is that- than likely poisoned as well. So, like Caleb explained, the ramifications are huge. Even though he may not have had a Um, detrimental effect on the investigation or the arrest of that case because he himself was a bad apple. You can't hold those others that he has been involved with accountable as bad apples as well. So, And we see that not just with this case but numerous cases throughout law enforcement, some that I was privy to over the years, unfortunately. So now, okay, we get or ors arrested, but now the flip side of that coin is we have, for lack of a, a an accurate number, hundreds of criminals that we have to now let go that are free to do whatever and run amok. Amok, 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 amok. So. amok, amok
1: um i i did try to look up any um like aftermath of john orr's case so obviously john orr um in terms of the killers and other serial killers that we have researched and we are planning to research john orr doesn't really mat doesn't really blip on there by all accounts i don't even think john orr class qualifies as a serial killer just by the standard definition.
3: No. Um, so when we're when we're talking about a serial killer, um, there are of course certain things that need to happen. They most uh, nine times out of ten serial killers have a pattern, a type, um, and you are looking at. Now there have been. Serial arsonists that were also serial killers as well They use the fire as their weapon But he was not um, And as a point of fact He did not intend to kill anybody When he set these no. fires They just happened to be in there Could not get out um, So, but no, he's not listed as a serial killer There technically has to be Uh at least three separate instances of a killing to list, as a, and they have to they have to have a certain amount of time in between each one. Um, with this four, it would be closer to a mass killing than it would be. It would be just like uh, the DC sniper. Mm-hmm. He technically was not a serial killer. Correct.
1: He, he was just a mass shooter. He right? was
3: a mass shooter, so it's kind of the same thing. Um, which we will touch on the DC Sniper Because that's a very very interesting case um, I, remember, I remember I remember the DC Sniper oh, exactly. um, Very very interesting case um, um,
1: one, one of the things with John Orr Although he is not A serial killer in the thing He is considered one of The, the nation's most Prolific Prolific uh, Prolific <laughs> I can speak English, I swear. Words. Uh, words yeah, words. Um He is one of the most prolific serial arsonists in our by the FBI and ATF standards, he is the most the worst that our country has ever seen.
3: Oh yeah. Um, I'm I mean um, there there's a big difference between serial killer and serial arsonist though. But it's oh. you're in the same area where certain amount of fires have to be set at a certain amount of time, blah, 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 blah.
1: Uh, well, he definitely he de- I always found it interesting as I was researching this, a lot of the times, as we as it was pointed out, a lot of arsons would occur when he was at conventions or conferences like professional conferences for a thing. He'd be up in Fresno like you said, Fresno, he's attending a conference and yet and then all of a sudden all these fires start breaking out in the in the area. It almost seemed like this was like a ego trip to him. Like 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 you said Aaron the fire thing has always been there. He's probably always had a thing for fire. Um they made a thing in the audio clip that we played at the beginning. They made a thing they made a thing about he got sexual gratification from it. I mean, maybe he did, maybe he didn't
3: so i i don't believe that um I, I when when we look at other arsonists um serial arsonist and we look at sexual gratification typically what would happen is they set the fires and then they will wait and hide and watch the burn. They will watch the response. They will watch the aftermath where John Orr didn't do that. He set the fires and then left.
2: And, and since we're going down that road, um, through all the training that I had in this area, you talk about the sexual ties for for those that are sexually aroused by fire they will visibly masturbate in front of that fire because that arousal is so intense so with or that wasn't the case i think it was 100 percent an ego thing uh look at me look at me i mean he was a busy bee seven or two thousand fires in a seven-year period that's huge. That's mm-hmm. a lot of fires.
1: You, and like you said, he did investigate some of those fires. Some of well, those things were his yeah. own things. And I, I, I maybe in his deep, in his, in his twisted, in his mind, in his really sociopathic mind, because like you said, I don't think he probably didn't intend to kill people. I don't think he cared one way or the other. Uh, he's he's over the years he's been interviewed by people. Joseph Wamba, very famous true crime author, one of my favorite true crime authors, um, interviewed him and that's for sort of the base of the book that I have Fire Lover King. He doesn't care. I he, he did not care. He killed a two year old boy. He I cared less.
3: I don't think he's a sociopath. I so okay, so here's the thing that people also have to understand. We we hear two terms psychopath and sociopath. Um, ben, do you know the difference between the two?
0: Uh,
1: well, the gen- just a very general. Like a psychopath is somebody who's just their mind is twisted, and and just they have a mental illness, and they can differentiate between. The re- reality and their own twisted fantasies. A sociopath is just somebody who who is completely aware of his or her surroundings. They just simply do not care. They have no empathy, sympathy, Correct. or emotional Correct. anything Correct. to anybody. Yeah.
3: So, so the yeah the sociopath knows what they're doing is wrong. They just don't care. They there is a part of their brain which they're intense. They've intensely been studying since the eighties. Um, since we coined the term serial killer, um, but they, there's something in their brain that makes it where they can't feel emotions. They can't love, they can't do anything like that. So you have some people that are psychopaths, um, and they can still feel love and hatred and things like that. Then you have other people like Ed Gein would be considered a psychopath, he did not know what he was doing was wrong. This is how he was growing up, he, and he showed love. He loved his mother so much so that he wore her skin.
1: Um too. Exactly.
3: Where you have somebody like Ted Bundy, who, in my in my opinion, is a sociopath. I. I, in my opinion, he never loved. His significant others I I think that was all A show he never loved Her daughter I, I Think it was all just he was all About a show that That he always put on a front um, So In here I don't think That he is either a sociopath Or a psychopath um, I again I think this was all Ego it was he so we see that he was working security and he told everybody he got his he found his cop six cents when he was doing security, um, which we have to laugh at as former law enforcement. Um, Paul Blart. Paul yeah, Paul Blart. he makes Paul Blart look like a real cop.
1: He actually looks like Paul Blart. He does. He at, does. He look at if you look at a photo of John Orr, he has like the little mall cop stash Yeah, and the little bald
3: bald in there. He's
1: kind. Hey, he was kind of I, fudgy. he like, God, he, he
3: had a he had a mustache his whole law enforcement career. Hey,
2: hey! In my defense, that was the thing then. If you were <laughs> law enforcement or whatever. That was what you had. You had that mustache, and it was cool. And I may or may not uh-huh. have worn those shades. I can neither confirm nor deny such actions.
1: We need Caleb, your mission uh, is to find a
3: picture of your dad is uh, in the uniform. There's one in the garage. <laughs> I know exactly
1: where. <laughs> Hey, you better scan that and post that in Discord. So, I mean, now, Aaron, I mean... And I'm pretty sure
2: Amy would be, because I know she'll listen to this at some point, she'll be able to produce said photograph, I'm sure.
1: uh, Now, Aaron, when when you worked at... Being a volunteer firefighter and a cop, did you guys ever have to like look into your like inward to find this stuff? Because it seems to me back in the day, like in this time period, it seemed like firefighters, cops were like I put they had like the blinders on. They just like John Or is like he said he that was not a joke. He literally would show up to crime scenes and just find out what's going on. Like he like he just knew. People at first people were like, oh my god, is it a great investigator? Now we're looking at like
2: Now I, I will say this, and I had this conversation with somebody before. Like, we'll take law enforcement because that's what I did the longest. I always said that there are two types of people. Those that are born for law enforcement and those that want to be law enforcement. Does not mean that those that want to be and aren't born for it can't do it. It just means that they're going to have a harder time. Okay? That being said, those that are born for it, I firmly believe there's an innate, inherent gift. You just have this instinct about what to do, where to go, what to look for. Um, I did it quite extensively um, in... uh, A a good example, my father, when he was alive, used to come down to Florida to do ride-alongs. And I remember we were out together the one night, and I decided to play just outside the drug neighborhood. And we're sitting there on the side, kind of hidden, watching cars. And I'm letting traffic go by, and I'm like, no, no, no. And this car goes by, and I went, that's the car we want. Long story short, we give chase. They tried to run. We ended up catching them. We get them. We make the arrest. We find a significant amount of drugs in the car. Get talking to my father afterwards, he said, how did you know 10, 15 cars went by us that you could have stopped? Because he had that background, so he knows what we're looking for. He said, why did you choose that one? I said, dad, I don't know.
1: I don't just know. knew. It's instinct. I
2: just knew that that was the vehicle I wanted and what I was after would be in that car. Mm-hmm. So in some cases, it is a gift. Um, now, in Orr's case, I do believe that that gift does not allow you to just stand there and go, Oh, it's going to be 300 yards that way when all the evidence is pointing the over here, way, you know. So
1: it's, it's so a similar case that's it's not an arson, but um it's an espionage case that we will I told Caleb we will be covering this. It's, it may or may not be my third my third episode is Aldrich Ames was next to uh, Robert Hansen, the most Damaging uh, spot uh, mold the CIA ever had. Mm-hmm. Um, now Aldrich Ames had been passing information for money to to the Russians for years. Oh mercy! Uh, Aldrich Ames was literally go- showing up at Langley at, at the office at Langley and like yes. a Rolls Royce or like a very expensive car for years. Yeah, it it's yeah. like, and then they were like, <gasps> wow. shock gas. He was a spy, wow. and I was like, "Uh, my here's a question: How did you not figure it out? That it was the fact that he's he's owning a car. Oh God!" <laughs> it, it, it was um, the thing, man. It was the. Thing. I, I I believe it. Um. But it seems, but but like Aldrich Ames, it literally took ten years for them to realize. Hey, he's living behind his means. We should look at his records. Hey, he's getting a lot of money in his bank accounts every month that we can't trace. Hey, we've got the Russians are getting access to information that only Ames has. It's the It's like I I tried reading. I've been reading the book on it. It's like wow. How did it, you it, not know? It's like yeah. wow. You took a whole book to realize that we should have been like yeah. hey. Captain Obvious, how did it not yeah. occur to you? In this case, John Orr is literally showing up to investigate. Now, obviously he he didn't investigate all of them, but he's literally shooting up the cases, and like you said, the cop the, the firefighters are clearing an area that's burning over here, and he goes over here, he's like, I found it. It's like how somebody and, I can't I believe think, somebody didn't think
2: how I think that that is indicative of the difference in investigation and thinking then as compared to now. Um, Training has come so far, personal experiences of the officers, all that kind of thing. You know, and at that time, having a serial arsonist was a relatively new thing, you know. There, there was not a ton of them out there. From so, what I,
1: yeah, from what I've understood, our the only there were, before the typical arsonist is one of two guys. He was either like a paid criminal. Mm-hmm. You get you give him a you give him a couple fifties. He he burns down your warehouse for the insurance money. Right. right. The other was like a. Dysfunctional psycho who's foaming at the mouth every time he you light a match. He can't, you know. He's more likely to set a, a dumpster on fire than a, like, an elaborate thing that John Or did. So that's that probably also played a factor. Everybody was looking for these two types, and they're like, mm-hmm. yes. "We fought, We got a. We got a working. We got a thinking man's this now." Yeah. Definitely. Caleb, how are we doing for time?
3: Um, so one thing I want to put into there is you also back then, you didn't have many like none of your arsonists were firefighters. none of not many of your killers were cops. So there was there was this level of trust back then that there isn't now. We're we're made to be a little more suspicious now. Um again, we're trained completely different now than and I mean I stopped being a cop in twenty twenty, right before COVID hit, and just the difference of training between twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty three is drastically different. Um obviously there's a lot to do with these civil stuff and stuff like that. But that's the other thing is we're seeing this from our point of view now in the 2020s where we're like, Oh yeah, I mean we can see that a mile away, but we also are trained to think that way now where in the eighties and nineties they weren't trained to think that way. You didn't, there was, you weren't going to come out and go, Oh, I bet you this is a firefighter. Because what good firefighter would set a fire? Your your job is to put it out. What good cop would go murder somebody? Your your job is to protect those people. So that's that's definitely that definitely played a factor. Um, but yeah, uh, so John Orr, this was a short one. Um but a good one Um And So two short One part or two short Two parters um But We will next week we will Be getting away from Death A little bit and get into Some stuff that we can make fun of A little bit um And kind of lighten the mood before we get into some we are gonna get into some heavy stuff here in a, here soon. Um, but Ben Ben will be doing a more light hearted one next week. Um, so lighthearted. Yeah. So
1: to make fun of some people that I've always really liked to point make fun of. Yeah. <laughs>
3: they're they're idiots. Um
1: they, they really are
3: so With that being said, once again, we want to thank my dad, Aaron, for joining us for part two. Uh, You guys will continue to see slash hear him in part two of each of our episodes. Um, So uh, if you guys have any suggestions on anything we should touch, we have a list. We are more than happy to add to it. If you guys would like to see us do patreon episodes that are patreon exclusive let us know dungeons and magi has a patreon we will start adding patreon episodes to the dungeons and magi patreon um and we'll do patreon exclusive episodes uh where we kind of dig a little bit deeper into some stuff um but if you guys have any of that let us know reach out Just as a reminder, Dungeons & Magi, uh, Scarlet Tavern is a child of Dungeons & Magi. And Dungeons & Magi, we are a group of friends who decided to take our love for D&D and turn it into a business and bring our love for D&D to you guys. Um, We have currently stopped the podcast part of that. We will pick that back up in Campaign 2 next year. Uh, but you can find us live every Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern on Twitch and YouTube. And you can find the replays on our YouTube. Twitch as well, if you are subbed. Um, if you would feel so inclined to sub, we would love for you to sub to us. Um and we do giveaways all the time if you want to if you're interested in D D and you're not sure about it. Um we're, we're a really good show to watch because I break down why I do specific things and why this works this way. So please give us a listen, give us a like and um, yeah, so and if you guys ever want want us to do a live stream of this, let us know and yeah. we'll we'll do a live stream of the talk show. but with that, I want to thank everybody for visiting the Scarlet Tavern. Remember to turn in your glasses, push in your seat, and always tip the bard. Good night, everybody.
1: Good night.